Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to another sunny week in Brooklyn. Very hot one, too. Um, I'm your host, Kathy Irway, and this is Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. Do you have food startup fever, perhaps? Um, Dreaming of turning your culinary claim to fame into some sort of cash cow in the future, perhaps? Um, I have an author on today who has just written a book that offers practical guidance, advice, on food startups, and it's called Raising Dough, The Complete Guide to Financing a Socially Responsible Food Business. Her name is Elizabeth Yu. How are you? Hi. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the air today. Thanks so much for joining. Um, and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your last name. Is it you or you? Um, it's you. I don't you. speak okay. Cantonese or German. <laughs> so it's you. Okay. Um, so you're, you're also the founder of um, a nonprofit called Finance for Food, and uh, this is your first book, correct? That's correct. Well, congratulations. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, um, well, all of it, really. <laughs> but, um, y- you know, this book seems to come at the heels of a couple different trends going on right now. Um, you mentioned that there's a, you know, there's a big trend right now in, or an increased interest, we could say, in investing more locally, um, in more smaller businesses, and, um, you know, sort of closer to home. So, like, a small family company of some sort, um, or locovesting, as one author uh, put it in a book of that title. Um, and also there's a trend in eating more socially responsible food, finding that food, producing that food, providing more access to that type of food. Um, seemingly, these two trends would converge into uh, a blissful reality of some sort, but um, you mentioned that uh, in your book, in the introduction, it's not quite or yet happening that way. Is that correct? It's true. It's true. I mean, there are several reasons why there are barriers between people that would like to invest in the types of businesses that are making up the communities that they want to be a part of. And whether these are food businesses or other retail or manufacturing businesses, it, it doesn't matter. There's some challenges mm-hmm. there. And um, so part of it is regulatory. There are several laws that make it challenging for people to invest in smaller, independently-owned businesses. And part of it is there's so many different ways and options for investing in these types of businesses or as an entrepreneur with, um, as an entrepreneur who's trying to raise money, there's there's just so many ways that a lot of folks don't know where to look. Mm -hmm. And even if they go to some of the more traditional technical assistance providers, you know, the, the usual places where people go to try to find help starting a business, some of those trainers don't always know all the options either, so they might still get steered down the more traditional financial paths, which, in my opinion, aren't always the most appropriate forms of financing for these smaller-scale mm. businesses, particularly those that are trying to solve socially and environmental, social and environmental problems. 
Interesting. So, so if I'm, you know, there's not enough resources. Also, if I'm somebody who wants to look around, and say I'm like, you know, decades into my career, retired, trying to maybe invest for the first time and thinking that I would like to try more socially responsible businesses rather than just the, the average, uh, blue chips or something like that. Um, there's not enough information or ways for me to do that. Is that right? It's true. I mean, there, there is information out there, but you have to know where to look. And for people like me that have been obsessed with this field for the last 10 <laughs> years, it's hard for us to keep up with it. And so h- how can we then expect somebody who has a completely different career, p- completely different set of, of, of skills and expertise to then suddenly magically understand the whole world of capital markets and particularly <laughs> its cutting edge and all the new innovations? <laughs> that's part of why I wrote the book is that I thought if I can't keep up with it, how can anybody else? I'm just going to write down everything I know and hopefully we can then increase awareness across the board. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I can't even come close. I, I haven't quite finished your book, but um, on to something that I can understand a little bit more, <laughs> hopefully, than finance. Um, you know, you you mentioned all these local vesting authors, the, the author of Local Dollars, Local Cents. Uh, Michael Schumann wrote the forward for your book. Um, but you're mostly, or you're particularly interested in local vesting when it comes to food. Um, why is that? Well, I think food is such an important lens on so many of the important social issues of our time, and whether it's climate change or environmental degradation, poisoning of our, our water sources, or soil runoff and erosion, but it also touches issues of public health like obesity and diabetes, those two epidemics. It touches animal welfare, wow. yeah. um, economic development. I mean, you name it. Everything. It, it all <laughs> comes back to food if you dig deep enough. Yeah. And like, you know, farmland trust and all this, these issues, it, it all relates to food. Um, yeah, because, you know, raising dough, it, it is about, it is specific to food um, startups, but it it kind of it struck me as a great practical guide to most anyone looking to conquer a socially responsible uh, a, a goal of some sort. Um, yeah, and that that was the intention. I think part of why I wrote about food businesses in particular is because so many of the financing innovations are happening in mm, the food space right now. Okay. And so, although all of the case studies are food business experiences in raising money, and there's both cautionary tales and success stories. I think both are very educational mm-hmm. for people to, to learn about, but these are all tools with the exception of some of the government programs that are specifically for farmers that any socially responsible business person, mm-hmm. or frankly, any business person at all will find useful. That's great. Um, and of course, you know, farms, farms finding uh, more financing is so important right now because it, it's it's, I don't know, do you have the stats on, on how many farms are disappearing these days? Um, oh, I, I don't have the actual stats, okay. but I know that this is, this is a very common trend. Yeah, yeah, and it's, um, you know, and it's, it's all because of, you know, finance reasons. Um, so, well, uh, I would say that, just to interrupt you, I think that's part of it. I mean, mm-hmm. Part of it is that there's Please. lack of awareness of where to look for appropriate financing, but the other part of it is that a lot of business people, whether it's farmers or otherwise, particularly in the food space, haven't necessarily done their homework or put together a really sound business plan or, you know, they're not presenting their business in the way that investors want to hear. So I cover all of that in the book. I mean, there's things that you can do long before you're starting to raise money that will increase your chances of being able to access capital later. And I want to make sure people know those as soon as possible so that they can start getting ready and, and be in the position where investors will be ready to talk to them and they're using the right language, they're presenting the right reports. 
so that they'll be able to successfully access capital. Yeah, good. Totally. Um, and, you know, you've been following this for so long. Do you see a change, a gradual change in the way uh, food startups or perhaps aspiring career-changing farmers trying to buy land um, are approaching um, of finance throughout the years that like you, you know, a lot of times, a lot of the times you mentioned, you know, they're really unprepared or they just don't have a good sense of where to start. Um, is there, is there sort of like a change that becoming more savvy? Do you see that happening? Well, I think that two different things are happening on both sides of that spectrum. A lot of people that have had successful careers or started successful businesses in other fields are now moving into the food space for a number of reasons, mm-hmm. um, which I can go into if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on the other side, there are a lot of people who are looking at um, – they're in the earlier stages of their career, and a lot of the younger business people or younger farmers, you know, they may not have had a, a successful business in some other I field. See. And so they're really both learning – the business of food and the business of farming at the same time as learning business at all. Mm. So I think we're seeing trends on both sides of that spectrum. Oh. Um, so I know a lot of people who can't really see past Kickstarter as one as the option um, to raise money for a business. Um, and you do have a great section um, talking about the pros and cons, how to, you know, strategies to use programs, other other platforms like Indiegogo and, uh, you know, what else is out there for using a crowdsourced online uh, sort, uh, bleh, resource such as Kickstarter in your book. Um, overall, do you think, like, do you, obviously it's happening every day, but do you think that it's a, a good idea? I think it's a great idea. And one of my favorite aspects of crowdfunding is that instead of, you know, just talking with one underwriter at a bank to try to get a loan mm-hmm. from a bank, which is a completely inappropriate avenue for a startup business. You need to have a long history of revenue generation and be profitable or close if, to even be eligible for a bank loan. But crowdfunding is far more accessible uh, to earlier stage businesses, but it also means that you're really activating and engaging your future customer base. And so these are people that will then be ambassadors for your business and have a stake in supporting it over time. Your, your crowdfunding supporters. But I also want to make clear that there are three very distinct types of crowdfunding, and each has a very different set of laws that are appropriate. And so one is using an online fundraising platform such as Kickstarter or Indiegogo to support a campaign to raise gift money. So this mm. is people that money give you. They don't expect any money back. Right. You might offer them a small token reward such as a sticker or a shout-out on Facebook. You'll write their name in the wall in the, the new restaurant that you're opening, what have you. The second form of crowdfunding involves uh, pre-selling product that you will deliver later. Mm-hmm. So whether that's selling gift certificates or a stored value card of some kind, um, that's a different type of crowdfunding. Yeah. And I do want to mention also Credibles, which is a, a newer crowdfunding platform that is designed specifically for this type of pre-sales. And it's, okay. it's designed also for food businesses. Right. And then the third type of crowdfunding involves uh, raising a small number of you know, raising small dollars from a large number of people, whether they're wealthy or not. And this type of crowdfunding, anytime you're looking at giving or offering investors a financial return, the entire realm of securities law comes into play. Uh-huh. And so people need to be very careful. Um, oh. And the, the easiest <clears throat> way that people accidentally break the law is with a third type of crowdfunding. And it is, in fact, illegal to publicly announce that you're seeking investors for a financial return, unless you've done a whole bunch of, of, of filing, which I won't go into, with the state or federal regulators. So three different types of crowdfunding. It's really important to know which one you're talking about so that mm-hmm. you can make sure to obey the appropriate laws. 
And one interesting thing you're talking about, you know, how everyone knows about crowdfunding, particularly to pre-sale product. I think that we might see a crackdown because this does, it can fall into the realm of securities and it may be that the regulators deem that pre-selling product on Kickstarter, if you're a startup business and have never offered this product before, might be a security and subject to these filing requirements. But we'll see. So far, it's working really well. We haven't heard of anyone getting in trouble yet. I still think it's one of the, the best ways that, that early-stage food businesses can raise money. Interesting. So you're saying that Credibles is actually a, a platform that is approved for pre-selling product. It is. And yeah. they're only doing the type of pre-sales that will not fall under this gray area of securities law. And so it is only... Um, or only businesses that have been in business for some time and have a, a history of sales can use this platform. But for so many food businesses that are out there right now, it is, it is very much appropriate, and they are already in front of the exact type of audience that would be interested in investing in this. It's, it's a, a crowdfunding platform that was originally designed um, and launched by the organization Slow Money, which is really the, the national headquarters for all matters of uh, investing in local food businesses. And you had worked there for several several years, correct? Yes, from 2005 to 2007, I was running that program. Excellent. Um, we're just going to cut to a quick little commercial interlude um, and uh, have lots more to talk with Elizabeth you about when we get back. You're listening to Broke Down by the California Honey Drops on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Stay tuned for more from Eat Your Words. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Did you know that pollinators are needed for more than two-thirds of the world's crop species? Most of these pollinators are bees. However, North America's bee population has been steadily declining since the 1990s. Whether you live in the country or the city, you can show your commitment by hosting a hive in your backyard or even on a rooftop. The beekeeping movement is growing, so you're sure to find swarms of folks who can help you find your way. Learn more about the ways you can help be the solution at wholefoodsmarket.com slash share the buzz. Chatting with Elizabeth Yu, she's the author of Raising Dough, The Complete Guide to Financing a Socially Responsible Food Business. Thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you. So um, you have a lot of different case studies in this book um, and, you know, triumphs, er trials and errors um, throughout it, cautionary tales. Um, Can you call out any cautionary tale in particular that uh, was, was surprising or interesting? Sure. Well, I'll mention a local one. I know that um, Window Farms is an in-house hydroponic system where people can grow grow vegetables or whatever they want in their windows Mm -hmm. um, with you know very little need for for extra space. Mm -hmm. And they actually did two crowdfunding campaigns using Kickstarter, and they used the model wherein they were pre-selling these Window Farm kits. And uh, part Uh of what 
they discovered, well, and actually both of their campaigns broke records at the time. It's funny, um, when they did their first campaign, $18,000 was the, the record for the amount of money raised for a food business on Kickstarter, or food project at all on Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. And then when they did their second campaign and raised almost a quarter of a million dollars, they broke the record again. So that oh, gives you a wow. bit of a sense of the, the, what is possible using these online fundraising platforms and also the trend and how, how um, they're increasing in their power. Yeah if you have a, a really amazing network, and that is one of the keys. You need to have a great network of people because it's not going to be complete strangers that will be supporting your campaign. Well, one of the challenges that uh, they, that the Window Farms people discovered in launching their campaign is that it was so successful, and they hadn't quite, uh, they didn't quite know what the appropriate retail price might have been at the time of launching their campaign, nor did they totally understand Uh-oh. what the manufacturing timeline would be. So they, in some ways, paid a bit for their success because uh, I think that the product ended up being more expensive to manufacture over time. And they had, a, you know, I think they did a great job in, in keeping their backers engaged and informed about what was happening. But, but definitely there were some disgruntled people that didn't get their window farm kits in the timeline that they had originally expected. So mm. there are... Again, I think they did a great job of, of mitigating some of what could have been <laughs> larger challenges, and it just goes to show that if you're going to do a campaign like this, you need to be prepared, have a contingency plan, make sure that you're clearly expressing to your potential backers what delays may occur or what surprises, what bumps in the road might happen over the course of, of getting this product to market. So it sounds like a learning curve for both the investors, um, the supporters, that is, and the uh, founders. Um, So you have, um, you mentioned in your chapter uh, about crowdsourcing to beware of crowdfunding fatigue. Um, (laughs) Ah, yes. Well, especially in the New York area, that's a potential problem. I'm feeling it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, I wonder about when we're going to reach this point of of just saturation, total saturation, and all these great projects that we would like to support. Um, it's just, first of all, like I, you get, I don't know, you grow a sort of weariness from it all and just shut down. That's what I'm worried about. Yeah, well, I think I'm less worried. It really depends, again, on which of the three types of crowdfunding mm-hmm. you are using. So people at this point are probably burnt out. In the early days of, of Kickstarter and Indiegogo, I think if you saw any of these campaigns at all, it was innovative, it was interesting. Sure, I'm going to gift 25 50 $100 to this project. You know, a sticker is fine, whatever. Keep your sticker. I don't need it. And then as people become more and more familiar, I think that the burden is on the fundraising entrepreneur to really articulate the value that they're providing through uh, the pre-sales form of, of crowdfunding. So if you're just using an online fundraising platform as a way to formalize your pre-sales campaign, whether you're selling gift certificates or whatnot, that can be... Uh, you know, I don't think people will get tired of that so long as you're providing a product or a service that they really want and that you're giving them some sort of an incentive to pre-purchase using the, the crowdfunding platform. And it, the thing I'll say also about Credibles, which we mentioned before, which is an online fundraising platform specifically for food businesses, is, is that Credibles also helps you keep track of your backers' accounts. So if somebody pre-purchases say, $250 worth of product, it can be really difficult, whether you're selling gift certificates or any other sort of stored value card in general. If you're not using Credibles, it can be really difficult to keep track of how much money is left in that uh, that investor's mm. account. 
So Credibles helps the entrepreneurs and the businesses track that, and both the people that have invested the money and those that have received the money can see in real time using any mobile-enabled device what their balance is, so there's no confusion. Sounds like a slippery slope for promising something that has not yet existed, basically. <laughs> yes. Um, Again, and and, and yet we see, you know, we see um, authors come in here who have <laughs> written their book thanks to crowdsourcing, um, and uh, of course, lots of artisanal food makers. So there's definitely a benefit that they're still around, um, that they are around, and uh, create creating some great products. But um, so, what was um, what do you think is the biggest uh, pitfall of of basically <laughs> starting up a food business? Well, gosh, I think my head is exploding. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know that's fine. That's fine. I think that the most important thing that I want to convey to people: we have so many passionate entrepreneurs that mm-hmm. see that there's a problem in their community, or there's a problem in the environment, or there's a problem with the whole food system in general, and they they want to. They want to resolve that problem, and they have a really great business idea. Passion and commitment does not make up for business savvy. You still need to make sure that your numbers match up. You, you cannot have a positive effect with, through a business if you are not also running a successful business. Mm. So I think that the best thing that people can do is really you take classes at the local small business development center or the, the local extension office or you know wherever you mm-hmm. can get a hold of small business classes. I think that the, the micro-lending community um, and the, there's a, a really robust community of organizations that serve small startup businesses. They provide micro-loans, but they also provide a whole bunch of really helpful um, financial literacy and business planning services because they want to see these businesses thrive. Right. So, And every you know, local city, town has their own SB, what is it called? The Small, small Business, business chapter. Development Center. Yeah, center. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah. one, one caution is you'll get some very, well, the quality of the training varies based on <laughs> which office you're in, but they may not necessarily understand what it means to be a socially responsible business. So you mm-hmm. will get some very traditional business skills, which will be very, very helpful, and then you'll need to make sure you view them through your own values lens and ensure that you're doing things in a way that still stay true to your priorities and goals for the business. Well, we're, I'm, we're all hoping that um, the whole, just the knowledge about startups and uh, resources for socially responsible businesses is starting to get understood by everyone in this chain of dynamic relationships, thanks to your book here. Um, it really spells it all out. And uh, is that why you wrote it? Because there just wasn't a book that really existed for food startups um, of a socially responsible nature. Sure, nor is there a guide for investors, but at least mm-hmm. there's a lot more resources available in organizations that are existing solely to serve uh, the needs of investors who want to move more money into this space. But yeah, I got so frustrated. I mean, I was working at RSF Social Finance, an amazing nonprofit lender that's based in San Francisco, and they work nationally, and they're really focusing more on um, food and agriculture businesses and nonprofits and social enterprises in, in their programming. And so frequently I would talk to people, and, and they weren't necessarily a good fit for our lending program, but I wanted mm-hmm. to send them to, oh, well, you know, we aren't, you're not ready for a loan from RSF Social Finance at this time, but 
you know, here's a list of all the other places where you might go, and that list just didn't exist. Oh. And, and even just giving somebody a list is one thing, but then saying, here's how you might be able to determine whether or not they're offering something that's a good fit for you. And if you do decide it's a good fit, here are all the things that you need to have in order before you talk to them. And then if the, it looks like the conversation is going well, here are some of the potential pitfalls that may occur. Here's how you can build in some terms into your financing agreement that might make it more likely that you won't have to dilute your values over time. So all of that wasn't going to go into a 20-minute talk. I give a lot of, of workshops, and I often get only 20 minutes, maybe an hour tops with people. I just couldn't include all the information that I wanted to, to put into socially responsible entrepreneurs' hands. Mm-hmm. So a 288 book does a much better job of that. But the other reason to write a book is, for me, it's a social justice issue. There aren't that many people who can afford to travel to or pay the registrations for or take time out to go to a conference yes. where this type of information yeah. might be might be happening and that where the conversation is taking place. A book can get into far more places, into any different type of community, and you can read it on your own time. So that, again, is there's a social justice aspect of even sharing financing information. And I want to also say a little bit about language. I think that the traditional financing world keeps themselves behind this barrier of really obscure language. There's some heavy lingo, and it's, it's really difficult to get people who have been in this world for a long time to explain things in understandable terms. And I think that's entirely unjust. And these, these concepts are not that complicated, mm-hmm. and you can use simple language, and that is what I really strive to do in this book. Wow, very interesting. Way to break through those, the gateway. You, know, you can find this book in libraries, you can pass it on to whomever, lend it, borrow, who knows what, buy it, it's cheap. Um, but yeah, that, I didn't even think of that. Um, Cheers to that. Um, and it just Thank came you. out, um, it actually just came out last month from Chelsea. Yes, Chelsea. I think it's been out for less than a month officially. Cool. From Chelsea Green Publishing. Um, what can we expect um, from you in the future? Maybe a book for investing <laughs> locally? or Well, because food? my undying devotion is to the entrepreneurs, it's okay. unlikely that I would write a book specifically for, for investors. investors. But let's mention again, um, you mentioned a couple times already, Locovesting, and that's a book by Amy Cortese. That's mm-hmm. the author's name. And then Michael Schumann's book, Local Dollars, Local Cents. Both of those are written more to the, entre- uh, to the investor's expect- mm-hmm. perspective. Well, thanks so much for catering to the entrepreneurs. I know many of them here at the station, in this community, in the whole entire community of uh, the world, um, would will be um, definitely looking to it. So thank you for that service. Um, That's great. Yeah, and I, I, I'm teaching a lot of workshops in the months coming up. So great. you can sign up for my newsletter at financeforfood.com. It's all mm-hmm. spelled out. And I've got a lot more information there. And I'm doing quite a few radio interviews, which I I love and appreciate. So thank you again for this opportunity. Well, Heritage Radio thanks you very much. Um, Definitely check out everyone at financeforfood.com for more info from Elizabeth Yu. That's about all the time we have. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.